If I am driving to work and I see a little dog walking on the street by itself and I stop and I pick that dog up and I put it in my car and I drive down the street a little further and I see a sign with that dog's picture, lost dog, Mitzi, and a phone number. I know with 100% certainty that when I call and they hear my voice and I tell them that I have found their lost dog, that mine will be the voice out of anyone else on the planet that they're most excited to hear. Imagine if everything that marketers marketed followed this pattern. You know that you have the thing that the consumer wants more than anything else. You know the moment, the timing. You don't need to worry, is it too late at night for you to be calling? Everything is lined up. As marketers, we need to start to ask ourselves, what are the things that don't fit this pattern of making our connections with our audiences ideal? And then we need to stop doing those things. Hello, this is Matt O'Leary, and you're listening to the Influence Hacker Podcast. A couple of exceptionally optimistic business partners, John Lenker and Kevin Delaplante, who you'll get to know better throughout the season, have joined together to right the wrongs of garbage marketing and renounce the shallow, soul-sucking tendencies of our cluttered information age. And I want to see if they're onto something. You just heard from John Lenker founder and leading strategic marketing planner of Lenker Consulting. John's a modern renaissance man with almost too many accomplishments and professional endeavors to name right now. And when I met John back in June, this casual coffee date turned into a riveting four-hour conversation covering everything from the island of Dr. Moreau to the death of Socrates. And that's how pretty much every meeting's gone since with the guy. The Lost Dog is John's perfect marketing scenario and one that I really feel encapsulates his vision. To make the value in your value proposition absolutely undeniable. To challenge businesses to prepare a product that meets that unwavering standard and to ask you and me to expect nothing less. I'm a high school counselor and just about as far from a marketing expert as you can imagine. And you know, maybe it's that we noble breeds and education tend to kind of snub our noses at the corporate and commercial, but I definitely had some questions for John when he tried to sell me on this podcast idea. First off, you know, why me? And also why another marketing podcast? If anything, you know, John seemed to welcome and and be energized by these interrogations like a mental obstacle course of sorts. And as I spoke, you know, without any reservation, opening myself to new ideas and ways of thinking about this vocation of marketing, I learned a lot. And I want to share some of those rich insights. I want to share what I've been going through. Before we forge ahead, I want to make something absolutely clear. This podcast is for marketers and consumers alike, as both have an equal responsibility to drive the industry forward through the integrity of their business and consumer practices. Every single day, we wade through the muddy waters of marketing messaging, 
this world of, of social jockeying that bombards us with our first glance at our phone in the morning. And in a messaging and media-saturated culture, our attention spans are constantly under attack and our discernment tested. If we're not going to be lambs led to the slaughter, or the ones slaughtering the lambs, then we have to get smart and we have to think this through. We're in the middle of this interesting, technologically powered engine of, of social influence. We're participants in it and we're subjects of it as well. And understanding what's going on in the world, we need some tools to help process. And the more tools, the better. That was the chief knowledge officer at Lenker Consulting, Kevin Delaplante. Kevin spent a couple decades working as an academic philosopher and was the chair of the Department of Philosophy and Religious Studies at Iowa State University. This environment of social influence that Kevin describes is just one component of the ubiquitous problem of information pollution, that is, the overabundance of superfluous and unsolicited and unhelpful information out there. And the relationship between information pollution and what John and Kevin call poverty of consciousness is tough to tease out. It's complex, it's nuanced, and it requires some serious analysis before we get to what it takes to overcome it. I know from my counseling experience and training that we have to be careful not to get ahead of ourselves here. And in our desperation for these easy kind of BuzzFeed article answers, we might just naively avert our eyes from the problem itself, which makes our solutions generic or cliche. Before we jump to solutions in the realm of marketing and influence, we have to understand the problem and its dark, grotesque complexity. So in this introductory string of episodes, we're going to try our hand at answering this question. What is information pollution? I've been throwing that around for years, but really, what is it? Think about any kind of pollution. I mean, what's wrong with pollution? Well, it, it smells bad. It makes the environment look ugly. It's bad for the environment. It's bad for, you know, animals, you know, it can spread disease. You know, there are all these, there are all these um, impacts of not being careful about what we put into our environment. And in, in the same way, I, I think that there are impacts on our consciousness when most of what is hitting us in any given moment is, is spam. The pollution metaphor makes it seem as if any and, and all information is a contribution to the problem. But what about the lost dog then? That product or, or service that's presented at the perfect moment to make people's lives better. We're not going to sit here and rail against commerce or business itself because the market is morally neutral and we can use marketing for good or for evil. So we could make these sweeping generalizations about what's good and what's garbage, but we have to keep in mind that there is some bit of subjectivity to this. There's probably not going to be a theory about what kind of messaging is always going to be positive or negative. Some people like one thing differently than others. There's tastes, there's uh, different life situations where that message right now was really relevant and, and helpful to me. It wouldn't have been relevant and helpful to me a year ago. So garbage marketing, it's not always perfectly obvious, but there's gotta be something we all agree on. 
But what are we up against? Up next, we're going to start to find that consensus to identify the forms of marketing that, at our very core, we so firmly reject. minds are like sponges in a sense. Um, but any, any sponge can only hold so much water and then it starts, you know, seeping the water. It, it, it's lost. It's wasted. So when you, you, you pour too much into something that it can't handle it, it goes beyond their capacity. Uh, it spills over and it, and it just becomes a mess when you get to a point where, where you're, you're getting so many inputs in any given period of time that we have no cognitive ability to absorb it and we start tuning it out and and it just becomes something that we're fighting against something we actually have to to protect ourselves from yet marketers they don't seem to be sensitive to that i mean they're not like oh you seem to be really there's a lot on your mind i was going to tell you about you know life insurance but i think i'm going to wait till you're Till you're feeling better or a better time. Um, but actually, you know, with artificial intelligence, that's the kind of thing that, that we should be able to do. But most marketers are just like, you know, how can I think of people trying to exit a building that's on fire? Nobody's thinking about, well, how do we do this decently in order? All they can think is how can I cram myself through that door and they don't care who they step on on the way out. Everybody is in such a hurry to to get the brain cycle of that person that that they're just you know turning up the volume turning up the volume as people are working harder to tune your message out you're working harder to turn up the volume ratchet up your efforts and and to break through and and you become part of the problem and not the solution this is to say that the redundancy of the information we subject ourselves to and are subjected to many people obsessively has had a gradual numbing effect. For example, if you're just kind of scrolling through Instagram or scrolling through Facebook and after a while, you know, the, the kinds of things that you see become very, very mundane. And even the things that you're interested in have less and less impact, almost like, you know, when you're um, on some kind of drug, you know, to, to get the same kind of high you need, more and more of the correct stimulus, and but it gets weaker over time. This example makes me consider the different types of environments I'm in throughout the day and how my perception of messaging is mediated by these environments. Say I'm at a baseball game. Target Field, man, that place is packed corner to corner with brands and ads. These normal baseball occurrences and technologies are paired with seemingly unrelated products like a instant replay sponsored by Schweigert Sausage. The field itself, and, you know, fair territory, that is, is the only sacred place left in there. Luckily, there aren't yet TVs installed above the urinals. Yet this is exactly what we'd expect at a densely populated spectator event nowadays, this maximal, crowded sensory experience. Whereas if I was reading a book in my, in my porch on a lazy Sunday afternoon, I expect the quantity of information in my surroundings to be very low, 
you know, so a, a simple knock from the Amazon Prime guy as he drops off a package might be an unwanted intrusion. Things that are familiar and expected blend into what Chrome Barrett referred to as the pattern of the mundane, the pattern of the mundane. And the, the things that are mundane, you don't, you don't really attend to or notice. And the things that are introduced into your field of perception that stand out and are different generally get your attention. So as you're sitting there in you know, the baseball stand watching the baseball game, unless it comes to your mind, you know, what's the score? You're not constantly attending to the scoreboard. And in fact, you probably won't even notice a change in the scoreboard unless you look for it specifically. However, if somebody runs out onto the baseball field to disrupt the game, you know, everybody instantly is going to take notice of the introduction of a stimulus into the environment that breaks out of the pattern of the mundane. One of the main differences that I, I pay attention to is whether the marketing environment you're in is a disruptive environment or if it's simply passive. Disruptive is when someone says, hey, you, hey, you, right? And they want to direct your attention to something new. So something on your smartphone pops up or an ad. Whereas if you're simply stay, you know, sitting in a bus and you have all this, that signage around you, that's all passive, baked into the environment. And you're basically experiencing this uh, sort of a steady state, you know, no one is interrupting your attention in, in that moment. If you choose to get lost in your own thoughts, you've got that freedom to do that. These disruptive and interruptive marketing tactics are definitely obnoxious, but as far as garbage marketing goes, they pale in comparison to the slimy deception and corruption that John and Kevin lay out in gory detail. I mean, we're talking about humanity here. We know that selfish motives run rampant. And although we're in some ways becoming more discerning in our cynicism of the establishment, vulnerable populations are still preyed upon. Up next, John reflects on some of the most egregious examples of these failures in the quality of marketing messaging. think about some of the products that are marketed to children. When I was a kid, nobody was talking about those things. And in all the cereal, the sugar cereal that we were buying and eating, you know, it was, it, the, the level of sugar is, is clearly toxic and poison. And it's not like we just learned this stuff. Scientists knew this way back when, but society wasn't holding them accountable. And I wonder, you know, what kind of person am I when I'm, I'm part of an engine that is influencing young people to consume something that is, that is harmful to their development and a cheap substitute for real nutrition. The naivety and innocence of a child is an obvious vulnerability, but there's nothing worse than a business that exploits a market of people experiencing fear of some kind instead of seeking to alleviate that fear. With the elderly, it's often the repetition that does it, you know, just flipping from prices right reruns to infomercials, watching the news every morning and every night, that mere exposure. 
precious metals, reverse mortgages, and completely useless medical devices that promise some kind of relief from pain. That's the trend right now. Of course, with these type of deceptive sales techniques, there are laws against blatant lying. So these scams, they have to be stealthy. But Kevin pointed out there's this intermediary gray space where marketers with questionable motives feel comfortable lingering, where crafty lawyers can wordsmith policies and arguments that obey the letter of the law, but not the spirit of the law. Container foods can be labeled as diet or L-I-T-E, but just add sucralose instead of sugar, make their slices a little bit thinner. People who are career advertisers working in agencies will tell you, and and here's a quote, I have it right in front of me. Here's an advertising insider who writes, the usual thinking in forming an advertising campaign is first, what can we say, true or false, that will sell the product best? And the second consideration is, how can we say it effectively and get away with it so that, one, people who buy won't feel let down by too big a promise that doesn't come true. And two, the ads will avoid quick and certain censure by the FTC. Unquote. This claim, it shows you the common tendency to equate what's legal in advertising with what's moral in advertising. And it's precisely this outlook that leads to advertising behavior of all kinds of dubious status. I'm interested in not only just the fact that people will say that and think it's okay, right? But how did well-meaning people come to the point in their careers where this is a normal thing to say? What are the institutional factors? What are the structures that have driven the industry to this place? That I find fascinating. But if I can also help to be a voice within that industry that pulls it back from that, that offers a reminder that there are other value considerations at play here than simply what's legal, then I feel good about that. So there's a glimpse of Kevin's vision right there to, at the very least, not contribute to that dumpster fire of a culture. As John and Kevin unravel their argument and mission in the coming episodes, this is something we can keep closely in mind. If you're not actively contributing high-quality content to your marketplace, whether it be your startup company or in the teacher's lounge at a lunch break, you can at least, first, do no harm. But the question remains, what are these forces that lead to a professional culture that produces reverse mortgages or triple Choco Blast Crunch cereal, or just advertisements that seem so shallow and brainless? Are the writers of these really awful late-night TV commercials just stupid? What I learned was that nothing could be further from the truth at the highest levels of management within the world of, of advertising and marketing in the corporate world. Some of the best educated people in the world are running these campaigns. And you think, well, if they're so educated, why is it that they produce such dumb stuff? And the reason that they do, it's deliberate because they find that if you, if you over-educate the market, they become more discerning, more demanding. In a sense, they want the market to, to function like a herd of useful idiots. You know, you tell them to jump and they jump. You tell them, you know, you want this latest thing. Now it's available in the color pink. So now, you know, buy the new one. 
they create dumbed down messaging because they want a dumbed down market. Historically, that's been the case. You don't want to be engendering in the masses the ability to have too much discernment. You want them just, you know, to say, okay, oh, that sounds good. I'll get one of those too. Kevin distinguishes between the more all-encompassing term of influence and his own hybrid of a phrase, rational persuasion, which reconciles the historically divergent disciplines of formal argumentation and communication rhetoric. More on rational persuasion and Kevin's ideas in future episodes, but for now, let's keep honing in on this unsophisticated type of influence. There's a, a fallacious argument that would be associated with like the, the sophists, but that's not exactly what I'm talking about. There are crafty sales techniques from smooth talkers, but still, that's not exactly it. I'm talking about these empty-headed ads as a separate category of garbage marketing. That's a persuasion where I'm not interested in getting you to buy my product or buy my service or change your behavior if what I'm doing is trying to bypass your conscious, rational thinking processes and just sort of target your reptilian brain mechanisms, right? If that's my goal, then I am undermine, I'm bypassing the thing that makes you distinctively human, <laughs> right? I'm using you as a means towards someone else's end rather than I'm treating you as an end in yourself. supplement the more conversational style of future episodes, there's the Influence Hacker Journal. In our second article, John outlines the payoff matrix or the possible roles of an influencer. Marketers who violate the maxim of quality, who communicate in disingenuous, misleading, or underhanded ways, fall into the realm or the archetype of the crook. Crooks win at the expense of their market. And when we're considering these money-making schemes, we're thinking of the crook, you know, the bully with the backwards hat at the playground who used to flip a coin and say, heads I win, tails you lose. But that phrase, information pollution, conjures up something else in my mind. I think of this, this cloud of noise, this noxious gas wafting out of an urban cesspool. And while the crook is part of that toxic brew, those deceitful types don't quite match up with that picture in my mind. I think more of copycat marketing that's crowding the market and ultimately irrelevant, where the value that's being offered isn't a cool glass of water to the thirsty, but an unsolicited attempt to siphon off of someone else's good idea. The hard part is the thinking process around innovation. That's the thing that's rare, is in, you know, originality. Then finally, there's the communication that's so unclear because there's too much excess fat to trim or no discernible value proposition there at all. If you've ever unsubscribed to an email list, then you know exactly what I mean here. The tedious daily spam filled with offers and information that's so far removed from your initial purchase and designed to cash in on the few and far between who take the bait. The problem comes in when 
we as an industry get into a pattern of, of conducting marketing that is uninformed such that it is not serving the purpose for which it was initiated. Think of uh, an incandescent light bulb. I mean, that the purpose of a light bulb is to illuminate, not to heat, right? And yet in an incandescent light bulb, something like 80% of the energy used is, is dispersed as heat. And, and so the efficiency of the light bulb is like 20% in terms of its, its illumination power. It's easy to assume the worst intentions with these type of marketing schemes, especially from a distance. Our suspicion for the rich and the powerful can be masked by a veil of virtuous empathy for the exploited. This makes me think of the concept of Hanlon's razor, which is a caution to never attribute to malice what is adequately explained by incompetence. But John said that there are times when this clunkiness is purposeful. And if that's the case, then what goes wrong? You know, what leads the human psyche down this path? And the way that we can do that is because we start by lying to ourselves. That's the first person we lie to is ourselves. Oh, it's no big deal. Oh, it doesn't really do that much harm. I really haven't thought about it that much. You know, we all know people like that. You know, they're hurting other people. They seem oblivious. We, you know, we steer clear of those people. You know, and, and in business, it's the same thing. Something that's really been interesting to me as I've been creating this podcast and as my curiosity's grown about the state of thinking in this field is just how vastly disparate the perception of this profession is from my own. When people think of a philanthropic vocational pursuit, there's possibly no greater distance between any two, at least on paper, than counselor and marketer. When I've told nice old ladies at church what I do for a living, there's a resounding response of gratitude and warmth and admiration. People tell me, you know, I could never do that, but thank God you do. So I wonder, what do grandmas say to an ambitious college student who's coming home for the weekend and they're studying marketing? This negative societal impression of marketing seems so ingrained that to shift it in any way would seem to take a radical effort and ethic. Let me set up the first sense of the marketing paradox, the one that seems more obvious. The marketing paradox in this sense is about this counterproductive way that so many marketers try to get our attention. They flood the customer with messages that they haven't invited, that aren't necessarily relevant to their needs. And our response as customers is that we want to avoid this kind of messaging. We want to block it out. This creates this feedback loop where the marketers are just trying harder to get our attention by shouting louder. Our response as customers is that we're even more disposed to resist this messaging. So that's the sense in which it's paradoxical, that the marketers trying to get our attention and the very thing that they're trying to do is causing us to resist their message. The second and more significant sense of the marketing paradox has to do with how we diagnose and try to resolve this problem. The diagnosis says that our marketing 
communications are the source of the problem. So it's tempting to say that marketing itself is the cause of the problem, is the root cause. But our view is that the problem isn't so much with marketing itself, but the way in which marketing is done. So the solution isn't to get rid of marketing, it's to change the way we do marketing. If we can bring to marketing a different philosophy, a different mindset, then we can reduce the sorts of problems that we're talking about here. So this is paradoxical in, in the way that uh, where you uh, think that the perpetrators of some problem are the ones that are themselves responsible for cleaning it up. This marketing paradox really hits home for me because it seems to really be about personal responsibility. When I'm working with a student and, and something's gone wrong for them, I'm really not that interested in parsing out blame. Time spent defending yourself or trying to justify past actions is time wasted in my book. Whether you're 99% to blame or 1%, the most mature and productive response is rational self-reflection. So no matter where I find myself in the market, no matter how vigorously I might despise the exploiter or the crook or the sly salesman, my best bet is still to focus on what I can control. Being cynical is the easy part. You know, it's really easy to tear something down, especially in a snide or dismissive sort of way, but the hard part is erecting something useful and innovative in place of the wreckage. As much as this episode is focused on the failings of marketing, the bad, the ugly, I want to be careful not to place ourselves on the outside looking in or just to revel in cynicism. If we assume that we personally have been part of the problem, then we might be able to transcend the pollution we find ourselves in. These days, a lot of my colleagues are asking me, what am I, as an academic philosopher, doing in the marketing business? A good idea can change the world, but a good idea by itself needs an audience. It needs to be, it needs to be shared. It needs to be manifested. It needs to be brought to the attention of an audience that can bring it into practice, that can make something real out of it. And that's not something you can do in the ivory tower. That's not something you can do in the classroom where you're only talking to 30 or 40 students at a time every year. The good ideas have to come out of our intellectual silos and be made real. I believe in the power of ideas. I believe in the power that they can have on people and on the world. But I've come to appreciate that good ideas don't have that impact all by themselves. They need to be shared. They need to be spread. Good ideas need to be championed. And they need to find the audiences that can most benefit from them. It's safe to say we got a lot of stuff to sort out. And my sincere hope is to give a voice to the consumer by giving my own opinions, but also just by talking to people. But I'll also be seeking wisdom from business professionals and those with something significant to say in the industry and the performance to back it up. In our next episode, we're going to share our great talk with one of the nation's leading voices in fighting childhood obesity, Dr. Robert Lustig. This guy really understands the depths of the food industry's propaganda and raises a fascinating question that really gets a rise out of John and Kevin. What is the difference between propaganda and marketing? Over the course of the season, we'll continue to poke and prod at these ethical questions, but with the ultimate goal of examining the convergence of the art and science of hacking influence. How can you have an activating effect on the thoughts, feelings, and behaviors of the people you interact with? Psychology, sociology, anthropology, philosophy, even physiology and linguistics play a role here. 
You can read the first three companion journal articles now by following the Influence Hacker Journal on Medium and can help us get this off the ground with a five-star review and by sharing with friends and family. The Influence Hacker Podcast is executive produced by John Lenker and Kevin Delaplante. Our mixing and mastering engineer is Patrick Dobrynin. The producer of this podcast, as well as the writer of the narrative and original music, is yours truly, Matt O'Leary. Thank you for listening. Thank you.